Chapter Eight of the Gold Hunters by James Oliver Curwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Eight: The Yellow Bullet. Before a rousing fire of logs, Rod and Wabigoon began to see the cheerful side of life again, and as soon as Mukoki had built them a balsam shelter. They stripped off their clothes and wrapped themselves in blankets, while the old Indian dried their outfits. It was two hours before they were dressed. No sooner were they out than Wabi went into the bush and returned a few minutes later, brandishing a good-sized birch in his hand. There was no sign of humor in his face as he eyed Rod. "'Do you see that log?' he said, pointing to the big trunk of a fallen tree near the fire. That will just fit your stomach, Rod. It will be better than kicking. Double yourself over that, face down, pantaloons up. I'm going to lick you first, because I want you to know just how much to give me. I want it twice as hard, for I was more to blame than you. In some astonishment, Rod doubled himself over the log. Great Scott, he ejaculated, peering up in dismay. Not too hard, Wabi. Swish fell the birch, and a yell of pain burst from the white youth's lips. Swish, swish, swish. Ouch! Great Caesar, let up! Don't move, shouted Wabi. Take it like a man. You deserve it. Again and again the birch fell. Rod groaned as he rose to his feet after Wabi had stopped. Oh, please, please, give me that whip. Not too hard, you know, warned Wabi as he fitted himself over the log. You chose your own poison, reminded Rod, rolling up his sleeve. Just twice as hard, no more. And the birch began to fall. When it was over, Rod's arm ached, and Wabi, despite his Indian stoicism, let out a long howl at the last blow. During the entire scene of chastisement, Mukoki stood like one struck dumb. "'We'll never be bad any more, Mookie,' promised Wabigawan, rubbing himself gently. "'That is, if we are, we'll whip ourselves again, eh, Rod?' "'Not so long as I can run,' assured Rod with emphasis. "'I'm willing to lend a helping hand at any time you think you deserve another, but beyond that, please count me out.' For an hour after the self-punishment of the young gold hunters, the three gathered fuel for the night and balsam boughs for their beds. It was dark by the time they sat down to their supper, which they ate in the light of a huge fire of dry poplar. "'This is better than paddling all night, even if we did have a close shave,' said Rod, after they had finished and settled themselves comfortably. Wabi gave a grimace and shrugged his shoulders. "'Do you know how close your call was?' he asked. "'It was so close that just by one chance in ten thousand you were saved. "'I had pulled myself upon the ice by catching hold of the bow of the canoe, "'and when Mookie saw that I was safe, he watched for you. "'But you didn't show up. "'We had given you up for dead when a few bubbles came to the surface, "'and quicker than a wink Mukoki thrust down his arm.' He got you by the hair as you were sinking for the last time. 
Think of that, Rod, and dream of it tonight. It'll do you good. Ugh, shuddered the white youth. Let's talk of something more cheerful. What a glorious fire that poplar makes. Make light more as twenty thousand candles, agreed Mukoki. Him bright. Once upon a time, many ages ago, there was a great chief in this country, began Wabigoon, and he had seven beautiful daughters. So beautiful were they that the great spirit himself fell in love with them, and for the first time in countless moons he appeared upon earth, and told the chief that if he would give him his seven daughters, he, in turn, would grant the father seven great desires. And the chief, surrendering his daughters, asked that he might be given a day without night, and a night without day, and his wish was granted. And his third and fourth and fifth desires were that the land might always be filled with fish and game, the forests remain forever green, and fire be given to his people. His sixth desire was that a fuel be given to him which would burn even in water, and the great spirit gave him birch. And his seventh desire was that he might possess another fuel which would throw off no smoke, and might bring comfort and joy to his wigwams, and the poplars sprang up in the forests. And because of that chief and his seven beautiful daughters, all of these things are true even to this day. Isn't it so, Mukoki? The old warrior nodded. And what became of the great spirit and the seven beautiful daughters? questioned Rod. Mukoki rose and left the fire. He believes in that as he believes in the sun and the moon, spoke Wabi softly. But he knows that you do not, and that all white people laugh at it. He could tell you many wonderful stories of the creation of these forests and mountains, and the things in them, if he would. But he knows that you would not believe, and would laugh at him afterward. In an instant Rod was upon his feet. "'Mukoki!' he called. "'Mukoki!' The old Indian turned and came back slowly. The white youth met him halfway, his face flushed, his eyes shining. "'Mukoki,' he said gently, gripping the warrior's hand. "'Mukoki, I love your great spirit. I love the one who made these glorious forests, and that glorious moon up there, and the mountains and lakes and rivers. I want to know more about him. You must tell me, so that I will know when he talks about me, in the winds, in the stars, in the forests. Will you?' Mukoki was looking at him his thin lips parted, his grim visage relaxed, as if he were weighing the truthfulness of the white youth's words. "'And I will tell you about our great spirit, the white man's great spirit,' urged Rod. "'For we have a great spirit too, Makoki, and he did for the white man's world what yours did for you. He created the earth, the sky, and the sea, and all the things in them in six days, and on the seventh he rested.' And that seventh day we call Sunday, Mukoki. And he made our forests for us, as your great spirit made them for you. Only instead of giving them for the love of seven beautiful women, he gave them for the love of man. I'll tell you wonderful things about him, Mukoki, if you will tell me about yours. Is it a bargain? Maybe, yes, 
replied the old pathfinder, slowly. His face had softened, and for the second time Rod knew that he had touched the heartstrings of his red comrade. They returned to the fire, and Wabi made room for them upon the log beside him. In his hand he held a copy of the old birch-bark map. "'I've been thinking about this all day,' he said, spreading it out so that the others could see. "'Somehow I haven't been able to get the idea out of my head that—' "'What?' asked Rod. "'Oh, nothing,' hastily added Wabi, as if he regretted what he had said. "'It's a mighty curious map, isn't it? I wonder if we'll ever know its whole story.' "'I believe we know it now,' declared Rod. "'In the first place we found it clutched by one of the skeletons, and we know from the knife wounds in those skeletons, and the weapons near them, that the two men fought and killed themselves. They fought for this map, for the precious secret which each wished to possess alone. Now—' He took the map from Wabi's fingers and held it up between them and the fire. "'Isn't the rest of it clear?' For a few moments the three looked at it in silence. From the faded outlines of the original it had been drawn with painstaking accuracy. With a splinter Rod pointed to the top of the map, where were written the words, Cabin and Head of Chasm. Could anything be clearer? he repeated. Here is the cabin in which the men killed themselves, and where we found their skeletons, and here they have marked the chasm in which I shot the silver fox, and down which we must go to find the gold. According to this we must go until we come to the third waterfall, and there we will find another cabin, and the gold. "'It all seems very simple, by the map,' agreed Wabi. Under the crude diagram were a number of lines in writing. They were, "'We, John Ball, Henri Langlois, and Peter Plant, having discovered gold at this fall, do hereby agree to joint partnership in the same, and do pledge ourselves to forget our past differences and work in mutual goodwill and honesty. So help us God. Signed, John Ball, Henri Langlois, Peter Plant. Through the name of John Ball had been drawn a broad black line which had almost destroyed the letters, and at the end of this line, in brackets, was printed a word in French, which, for the hundredth time, Wabi translated aloud, DEAD. From the handwriting of the original we know that Ball was a man of some education, continued Rod, and there is no doubt but that the birch-bark sketch was made by him. All of the writing was in one hand, with the exception of the signatures of Langlois and Plant and you could hardly decipher the letters in those signatures if you did not already know their names. From these lines it is quite certain that we were right at the cabin when we concluded that the two Frenchmen killed the Englishman to get him out of their partnership. Isn't that story clear enough? Yes, as far as you have gone, replied Wabi. These three men discovered gold, quarreled, signed this agreement, and then Ball was murdered. The two Frenchmen, as Mukoki suggested at the cabin, came out a little later for supplies and brought the buckskin bag full of gold with them. 
They had come as far as the cabin at the head of the chasm when they quarreled over possession of the map and agreement, fought, and died. From the old guns and other evidences we found near them, we know that all this happened at least fifty years ago, and perhaps more. But, he paused, whistling softly, where is the third waterfall? I thought we settled that last winter, replied Rod, a little irritated by his companion's doubt. If writing goes for anything, Ball was a man of education, and he drew the map according to some sort of scale. The second fall is only half as far from the first fall as the third fall is from the second, which is conclusive evidence of this. Now Mukoki discovered the first waterfall fifty miles down the chasm, and we figured from the distances between John Ball's marks on the birch that the third fall was about two hundred and fifty miles from our old camp at the head of the chasm rejoined Wabigawan. It looks reasonable. It is reasonable, declared Rod, his face flushed with excitement. From the head of the chasm our trail is as plain as day. We can't miss it. Mukoki had been listening in silence, and now joined in the conversation for the first time. Must get to chasm first, he grunted, giving his shoulders a hunch that suggested a great deal. Wabi returned the map to his pocket. "'You're right, Mookie,' he laughed. "'We're climbing mountains before we come to them. "'It'll be tough work getting to the chasm.' "'Much water. Very swift. "'River run like twenty thousand caribou.' "'I'll bet the Ombabica is a raging torrent,' said Rod. "'And we've got forty miles of it, all upstream,' replied Wabi. Then we come to the height of land. After that, the streams run northward to Hudson Bay, and when we reach them, we'll hold our breath and pray instead of paddling. Oh, it will be exciting fun rushing downstream on the floods. But there is work before us tomorrow, hard work, said Rod, and I'm going to bed. Good night. Mukoki and Wabigawan soon followed their companion's example and half an hour later nothing but the crackling of the fire disturbed the stillness of the camp. Mukoki was as regular as clockwork in his rising, and an hour before dawn he was up and preparing breakfast. When his young comrades aroused themselves, they found the ducks they had shot the preceding day roasting on spits over the fire, and coffee nearly ready. Rod also noticed that a part of the contents of the canoe were missing. "'Took load up to river,' explained Mukoki in response to the youth's questioning. "'Working while we sleep, as usual,' exclaimed the disgusted Wabigawan. "'If it keeps on, we'll deserve another whipping, Rod.' Mukoki examined a fat bluebill, roasted to a rich brown, and gave it to Rod. Another he handed to Wabigawan, and with a third in his own hands he found a seat for himself upon the ground close to the coffee and bread. "'Ah, if this isn't fit for a king!' cried Rod, poising his savory bluebill on the end of a fork. Half an hour later the three went to their canoe. Mukoki had already packed a half of its contents to the river a quarter of a mile away, 
and he now loaded himself with the remainder while the two boys hoisted the light birch upon their shoulders. As Roderick caught the first glimpse of the Ombabica in the growing light of day, he gave a cry of astonishment. When he had gone up the stream the preceding winter, it was scarce more than a dozen gun lengths in width. Now it was a veritable Amazon, its black, ugly waters rolling and twisting like the slow boiling of a thick liquid over a fire. There was little rush about it, no frenzied haste, no mountain-like madness in the advance of the torrent. Rod had expected to see this, and he would not have been startled by it. But there was something vastly more appalling in the flood that rolled slowly before his eyes, with its lazily twisting whirlpools, its thousand unseen currents rolling the water here and there, always in different places, like the gurgling eruptions he had often observed in a pot of simmering oatmeal. There was something uncanny about it, something terribly suggestive of giant hands under the surface, waiting to pull them down. He knew, without questioning, that there was more deadly power in that creeping flood than in a dozen boisterous torrents thundering down from the mountains. In it were the cumulative waters of a score of those torrents, and in its broad, deep sweep into the big lake the currents and perils of each were combined into one great threatening force. The thoughts that were in Rod's mind betrayed themselves as he looked at his companions. Mukoki was reloading the canoe. Wabi watched the flood. "'She's running pretty strong,' said the Indian youth dubiously. "'What do you think of it, Mookie?' "'Keep close to shore,' replied the old warrior, without stopping his work. "'We make him safe.' There was a good deal of consolation in Mukoki's words, for both youths still bore smarting reminders of his caution and good judgment. In a short time the canoe was safely launched, where a small eddy had worked into the shore, and the three adventurers dug in their paddles. Mukoki, who held the important position in the stern, kept the bow of the birch within half a dozen yards of the bank, and to Rod's mind they slipped upstream with amazing speed and ease. Now and then one of the upheavings of the currents would catch the canoe, and from the way in which it was pitched either to one side or the other, Rod easily imagined what perils the middle of the stream would have held for them. Quick action on the part of Mukoki and Wabigawan was always necessary to counteract the effect of these upheavals, and in the bow Wabi was constantly on the alert. At no time could they tell when to expect the attacks of the unseen forces below. Ten feet ahead the water might be running as smooth as oil, then a single huge bubble, as if a great fish had sent up a gasp of air, and in an instant it would be boiling like a small maelstrom. Rod noticed that each time they were caught near one of these, some unseen power seemed sucking them down, and that at those times the canoe would settle several inches deeper than when they were in calm water. The discovery thrilled him, and he wondered what one of the big eruptions out in midstream would do to them if they were caught in it. Other perils were constantly near them. Floating logs and masses of brush and other debris swept down with the flood, 
and Wabi's warning cries of right, left, and back came with such frequency that Rod's arms ached with the mighty efforts which he made with his paddle in response to them. Again the stream would boil with such fury ahead of them that Mukoki would put in to shore and a portage would be made beyond the danger point. Five times during the day were the canoe and its contents carried in this manner, so that including all time lost an average of not more than two miles an hour was made. When camp was struck late that afternoon, however, Mukoki figured that they had covered half the distance up the Ombabika. The following day's progress was even slower. With every mile the stream became narrower and swifter. The treacherous upheavals caused by undercurrents no longer harassed the gold-seekers, but logs and debris swept down with greater velocity. Several times the frail canoe was saved from destruction only by the quick and united action of the three. They worked now like a well-regulated machine, engineered by Wabigawan, whose sharp eyes were always on the alert for danger ahead. This second day was one of thrills and tense anxiety for Rod, and he was glad when it came to an end. It was early, and the sun was still two hours high when they stopped to camp. Mukoki had chosen an open space, backed by a poplar-covered rocky ridge, and scarce had the bow of the canoe touched shore when Wabi gave an excited exclamation, caught up his rifle, and fired three rapid shots in the direction of a small clump of spruce near the foot of the mountain. "'Missed, by all that's good and great!' he yelled. "'Quick, Mukoki, shove her in! There's the biggest bear I've seen in all my life!' "'Where?' demanded Rod. "'Where is he?' He dropped his paddle and snatched his own rifle, while Mukoki, keeping his self-possession, brought the canoe so that Wabi could leap ashore. Rod followed like a flash, and the two excited youths sped in the direction of the bear, leaving their companion to care for himself and the heavily laden birch. A short, swift run brought them to the edge of the spruce, and with hearts beating wildly the two scanned the barren side of the mountain ahead of them. There was no sign of the bear. "'He turned downstream!' cried Wabi. "'We must cut—' "'There he is,' whispered Rod sharply. Just beginning the ascent of the mountain, four or five hundred yards below them, was the bear. Even at that distance Rod was amazed at the size of the beast. "'What a monster!' he gasped. "'Blaze away!' urged Wabi. "'It's four hundred yards if it's a foot.' Aim for the top of his back, and you'll bring him. Suiting action to his words, he fired the two remaining shots in his rifle, and as he slipped in fresh cartridges, Rod continued the long-range fusillade. His first and second shots produced no effect. At his third, the running animal paused for a moment and looked down at them, and the young hunter seized his opportunity to take a careful aim. At the report of his gun, the bear gave a quick lunge forward, half fell among the rocks, and then was off again. "'You hit him!' shouted Wabi, setting off on a dead run between the spruce and the mountain. 
For a few brief moments, Rod studied the situation as he reloaded. The bear was rapidly nearing the summit of the ridge. By swift running, Wabigawan would have another fair shot before the animal got out of range. If that shot were a miss, they would lose their game. In a flash, he discerned a break in the mountain. If he could make that, and the bear turned in his direction... Without further thought, he ran toward the break. He heard the sharp reports of Wabi's rifle behind him, but didn't stop to see the effects of the fire. If it was another miss, every second counted. The cut in the mountain was clear. Breathlessly, he dashed through it and stopped on the opposite side, his eyes eagerly scanning the rock-strewn ridge. He made no attempt to suppress the exclamation of joy that came to his lips when, fully eight hundred yards away, he discerned the bear coming down the side of the mountain, and in his direction. Crouching behind a huge boulder, Rod waited. Seven hundred yards, six hundred, five hundred, and the bear turned, this time striking into the edge of the plain. The animal was traveling slowly, partly stopping in his flight now and then, and Rod knew that he was badly wounded. It was soon evident that the course being taken by the game would bring it no nearer, and the young hunter leveled his rifle. Five hundred yards, more than a quarter of a mile. This was desperate shooting, shooting that sent a strange thrill through Roderick Drew. The magnificent weapon in his hands was equal to the task. It would kill easily at that distance. But would he fail? He was confident that his first shot went high. His second had no effect. To his third there came the sharp response of a fourth from the top of the mountain. Wabigawan had reached the summit and was firing at six hundred yards. The bear stopped. With deadly precision, Rod now took aim at the motionless animal. An instant after he had fired, a wild shout burst from his throat and was answered by Wabigawan's joyful yell from the mountain. It was a wonderful shot, and the bear was down. The animal was dead when the triumphant young hunters reached its side. It was some time before either of them spoke. Panting from their exertions, both looked down in silence upon the huge beast at their feet. That he had made a remarkable kill, Rod could see by the look of wonder in his companion's face. They were still mutely regarding the dead animal when Mukoki came through the break in the ridge and hurried toward them. His face, too, became filled with amazement when he saw the bear. "'Big bear!' he exclaimed. There was a world of meaning in his words, and Rod flushed with pleasure. "'He weighs five hundred, said Wabi, "'and he stands four feet at the shoulders, if an inch.' "'Fine rug,' grinned Mukoki. "'Let's see, Rod. He'll make a rug.' Wabi walked critically around the bear. "'He'll make you a rug over eight feet long by about six in width. "'I wonder where he is hit.' A brief examination showed that while the honors of the actual kill were with Rod, at least one, and perhaps two, of Wabi's shots had taken effect. 
The last shot from the white youth's rifle had struck the bear just below the right ear, causing almost instantaneous death. On this same side, which had been exposed to Rod's fire, was a body wound, undoubtedly made by the shot on the mountainside. When the animal was rolled over by the combined efforts of the three, two more wounds were discovered on the left side, which had mostly been exposed to Wabigawan's fire. It was while examining these that the sharp-eyed Mukoki gave a sudden grunt of surprise. "'Him shot before, long time ago. Old wound, feel bullet.' Between his fingers he was working the loose hide back of the foreleg. The scar of an old wound was plainly visible, and both Rod and Wabi could feel the ball under the skin. There is something that fascinates the big game hunter in this discovery of an old wound in his quarry, and especially in the vast solitudes of the north, where hunters are few and widely scattered. It brings with it a vivid picture of what happened long ago, the excitement of some other chase, the well-directed shot, and at last the escape of the game. And so it was now. The heads of Rod and Wabigawan hung close over Mukoki's shoulders while the old Indian dug out the bullet with his knife. Another grunt of surprise fell from the pathfinder's lips as he dropped the pellet in the palm of his hand. It was a strange-looking object, smooth and curiously flattened. "'Very soft bullet,' said Mukoki. "'Never know lead thin, thin out like that.' With his knife, he peeled off a thin slice of the ball. Him! He held up the two pieces. In the sun, they gleamed a dull, rich yellow. That bullet made of gold, he breathed, scarcely above a whisper. No yellow lead. That gold, pure gold. End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Moline.